Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 11th, 2015. This is episode 1572 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday, and um, I'm going to say a couple things right up front about last week. Number one, um, the two shows I did last week, I don't feel like I was on the top of my game. Uh, my voice was strained. I think I was sick. I think I picked something up while on the project in Arkansas. So uh, when only giving you two shows and not being at the top of my game, uh, let me just say I apologize for that. Also, um, a quick announcement. Our our buddy Ralph, a cat that we've had with us for 19 years, we estimated his age at 23 to 24 years of age, uh, did pass away on Friday, and we knew that was coming. So that had me a bit distracted. So with all of that, I actually screwed up last week, and I had made a small audio file for somebody. And when I did that, I, I kicked that audio file out at like 16 KBS because I was going to email it. And I didn't change it back. So that not only did I kind of not be all there for those two shows, uh, when I originally published them, they were in 16 KBS. And I, uh, KBPS. And when I... When I publish shows, I publish a lot lower than most podcasters do. I, I publish at 32. But the audio quality, I feel, is is quite good at that rate. That is FM radio quality. And I figure that's good enough for an audio podcast. And that makes the shows easier to download. But at 16, it, it almost sounds like you're in a can. If you have those shows and you want the better audio quality, what you need to do is delete them and, and re-download them. And then on Friday, when somebody pointed this out to me and I was distracted and I fixed it... Um, I re-uploaded both shows for about an hour where like 20 minutes of them was blank at the beginning, and then they started. Um, if you have that, delete it and re-download it. And I'm sorry, just we all have limits, and I think last week I was at the edge of mine. So I wanted to just kind of apologize for not having the show be what it usually is quality-wise with audio or maybe even my delivery last week, especially since it was only two days. But, guys, I was just worn out. Um Sunday through Wednesday in Arkansas and having all the things I had to do back here in severe weather, it was just uh, tiring. So good news is we're done with severe weather, at least till Saturday of next week. It looks like right now. I'm about tired of this. I need it to dry up. I think I have a pipe leaking somewhere uh, that I can't even figure out until it does dry up. So I've got the water shut off to that zone. Uh, or it could have been something else. I can't even verify that. I've got tons of stuff to do. I did get an episode of the Duck Chronicles um, recorded today. It was a long one, so it probably won't be out till the end of the day because after I upload it, then i got to go into YouTube Editor and pen it all together. So if you like the Duck Chronicles, pay attention by the end of the day. You should have a new episode to see uh, with a lot of cool stuff in it. Next up, uh, let's... Uh Let's take a look at our sponsors for today. Our sponsors do an awful lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. 
Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of publication at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription and you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. And with that, let's take a look at our history segment for today. It's the year 1572, because the episode is 1572. Um, I have three for you today, and I, I want to read them all, uh, like I do a lot of days. Numbers that don't exist, imagine that, is one of them. And another one is a new star and a Star Trek misstep. And then the next one is have a little faith. We'll get through this eventually. Uh, I'm going to read numbers that don't exist. God, I want to read the second one, but you're going to have to read it for yourself at tspwiki.com if you want to read it. Numbers that don't exist, imagine that. Counting was once a positive experience. Numbers are now a lot more complex. Math needs new rules. Uh, and an Italian mathematician, Raphael Bombelli, has provided a few deceptively simple ones. Plus times minus makes plus. Minus times minus makes plus. Plus times minus makes minus. Minus times plus makes minus. But what about the square root of negative one? This breaks the rule, but in some calculations it's easier to imagine that such a number might exist until it's canceled out later, saving us from thinking about what they really are. These placeholders are called imaginary numbers. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these together for us. There are fundamental mysteries in math, physics, and the universe that we ignore in order to move forward. We must trust that someday we will understand it all. Example, a lot of money was spent finding the Higgs boson because we trusted that the standard model of the universe was mostly correct. But there are still holes in the, in the model large enough to drive a truck through. 
I'm sticking with the standard model because it mostly works. But the universe is not as predictable as I thought it was, and it scares the heck out of me. For more information, see the horizon problem. I think, personally, and this is why I chose this one, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I think this all means. I think the universe, and I'll dare I say the multiverses, are far more vast and interesting than we've even begun to understand. I feel like we're standing right now when it comes to looking at how math uncovers the universe for us. And not even math, just our basic understanding of what is. Math is just a window to see now what we can't see through a lens, is the way I look at it. And I think it's like we've we've ventured into the edge of a redwood forest primeval. Like, one that existed before we screwed anything up. That amazing. And we're standing here looking at a single tree. And we can compute roughly how big the area is, sort of, and how many trees are in it and how big they are and what they do. But we have no idea of the vast sub-habitats that exist within there. How one little insect might live in there that's key to the whole thing that we don't even notice because it's so small comparative to the whole. And I think in many ways those are the multi-dimensional spaces of string theory. And that's one way that we can understand that. But I think we, we're not even seeing the tree. I think we've just glimpsed the ghost of what the tree might look like. And there's a forest. And it's only one forest, but we only know of the one. But I think there are many. And that doesn't scare me. That intrigues me. And as a person who believes in spirituality, but not organized religion, it actually intrigues me a great deal as to what is the possible potential of what we call a life force or human consciousness. I, it intrigues me a lot. Anyway, um, Star Trek Misstep is a really cool one you might want to read too. All of this stuff at tspwiki.com is cool. It's why I hope that when Alex gets to the point where he's completed whatever level of this he wants to do, that he might consider putting all of this into some sort of a book. I think this would be an incredible book. Uh, to have as a tabletop book or, or something like that. I really do, because it is a look into history that I've never seen before. And I just would like to thank Alex for his contributions to the show. Now, I'd like to share a little bit of Jack Math with you. I put this on Facebook last week. Uh, if you want to know what it actually means, you will have to go to uh, the Facebook post about it. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But it is a mathematical formula you can use in real life. And it is to help you deal with situations that are out of your control or don't really pertain to you. It starts out with the Franklin algorithm, as in Neil Franklin, which I've talked about before. I've actually said it on the air one time. But the way I would express it as symbology on a piece of paper, R equals square root of FA. R equals the square root of FA. Many of you have cracked that from hearing it on the show in the past. But to make it really work for all of these things that get in the way in your life, you have to add what I call the Spirico compensation to it. So a lot of times you have an algorithm from one mathematician and a compensation from another that makes that algorithm actually work for what you're trying to do with it. So the Spirico, comp, um, the Spirico uh, compensation for this is you multiply by negative 40 GAF, G-A-F-F. If you want to know more about that and how it actually applies to your life, check out 
the TSP Facebook page. I'll have a link in today's show notes. Last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get special content available only to members and help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Um, just email me with uh, g- email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get it back to you. Everybody else, just check out the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members and look at all the amazing discounts that I've got lined up for you. Remember, I take PayPal online, but I also take check, money, order, cash, silver, or barter through the mail. If you want to barter with something, email me and let me know. All right. With that, I want to get into uh, the main topic of today's show. I actually want to start out with an update about the... Uh, Permaethos event on the week of June 11th in West Virginia and encourage you to consider coming if you've not already signed up to come. I do believe we still have space left. Um, one of the coolest things I think that we're going to have there is we've invested in a man named Mike Vertries, who was our original, one of our two original tenant farmers. Jesse's kind of taken over running the farm and Mike decided to produce some other things. And he asked us to invest in his education in soil sciences, and we've been sending him through the multiple courses with Dr. Elaine Ingham. And I have been blown away with the level of knowledge that Mike has gained and the development professionally that I've seen out of him from making that investment. It might be one of the best investments that we've made. He will be giving a talk on soil development and soil sciences, and I love what he's called it. It's called How to Get Your Plants Off Welfare. In this talk, Mike will share some uncommon knowledge he's learned studying under Dr. Elaine Ingham. In this talk, you will have the opportunity to learn how to eliminate fertilizer, suppress disease, stop using pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, build soil structure, retain nutrient in your soil, increase nutritional density and flavor of your food, reduce cost uh, with a safe, permanent solution. Mike will show you how to uh, the hows and whys of fixing soil using compost, Compost tea and compost extracts in order to get your plants back uh, to work taking ca- to work taking care of themselves instead of always depending on you and expensive inputs. So I, I think that is going to be really awesome in of itself. And that's not all we've added since we originally uh, uh, announced this. Chris Prater is coming and he's going to do a class on making knives and show you how to, like you can start making your own knives not with kits from raw materials uh, with less an, an investment under hundred bucks. Just the stuff you need to get going, and some really cool stuff. Uh, he made Nick a little, Nick Ferguson a little grafting knife. Uh, that's going to be awesome. Patrick Rohrman, a custom master knife maker, is going to be there. He'll have a special deal on the Genesis knife and sharpening stones to go with it. He'll be sharpening knives and doing classes. John Dowie. Uh, from New Hampshire's coming down. He's going to be constructing mini greenhouses. We're going to have them in various stages of construction uh, so that it'll be easy to have a full class on how to build these mini greenhouses. Uh, he's made some modification to Texas Preppers uh, greenhouse. Really, really awesome. Low cost. You can knock out a greenhouse a day with this technique and either sell them or use them for your own needs. Uh, so we have that being done as well. These are all things we've added since we initially announced things. Of course, we're going to be cooking permaethos pork and rabbit and chicken and duck. It's going to be an awesome event. Um, to learn more, visit the link in today's show notes. I'd really love to see as many of you guys there as possible. Uh, we'll have the barter blanket going, all the other great stuff. Um, I'm not going to say it's exactly the same as coming to an event here at my house, but a lot of you guys up in the Northeast, it may be easier to get to this. 
And there's a, there's a community that forms around these events that you have to experience to truly understand. Uh, we also have a bonus workshop on uh, animal slaughter and processing that will be the, the, the day before the event, the, the rest of the event starts. That's an extra hundred bucks if you want to attend that. And uh, you can either do just the event or the two together. It's up to you. Uh, the first bit of feedback I have for you guys today on today's show is about a question that I talked about last week on the listener feedback show, actually the listener call-in show, where uh, Karim from Illinois said he was moving to Texas and that there was a 180-day resident requirement or a six-month residency requirement when you move to Texas before you can get your, your CHL. And I said one way around that is to get a non-resident Florida CHL and use that for your first six months, and then, then you can go get a, a resident Texas permit if you're in that kind of weird limbo situation. And But I wasn't sure if Texas would honor a Florida permit, non-resident permit for a Texas resident. And I wasn't sure about that. They have reciprocity with Florida. I haven't heard back on that yet, but it may be a moot point. Um, David on the TSP blog commented on that episode, and I wanted to give you this update because it may affect a lot of you guys that have decided that Texas is maybe greener pastures with a little bit more liberty than the rest of the country, uh, or at least a lot of the rest of the country. Here's what David says. David says, it is my understanding that the six-month residency requirement for Texas CHL was either dropped a couple of years ago or is not really enforced or something. I've seen several forums and CHL websites that show that the requirement was dropped several years ago. Based on that, I just contacted two Dallas-area CHL instructors at Shoot Smart in Fort Worth and DFW Gun. Both said that the six-month period is not required as long as you have a valid Texas driver's license, which they'll give you the day you get here if you go down with proof of residence. Okay? The Shoot Smart instructor said the penal code still has the six-month requirement on the books, but said it's not actually required because, well, it's complicated. I'm not sure what that means, but it's worth looking into. I expect to start the process in the next week or two, and we'll be able to confirm this info at that point. I don't know what it's complicated means, but it may have something to do with if you violated and carried uh, without a permit, and you're also in that window, maybe it's like some additional, like what you would call an aggravating circumstance, so they left it in the penal code. I'm not sure. God knows that our state's not perfect and anything they can do to be authoritarian, like any government, they'll do. The problem is not the government, it's government. So, But I do think that it, this might likely be the case at this point. Um, anybody who's moved to Texas uh, came from a state with a, a CHL that we did not have reciprocity to or came from a state that didn't have it or just didn't have your CHL when you got here uh, that then applied for and got your concealed carry permit Uh, for the state of Texas, inside the 180 days, earlier than, than the law technically says you can, I'd love to hear from you and love to know that you were able to do that so we can confirm this. Otherwise, David, thanks for the follow-up, and uh, please let us know what you find out in your investigation. Um, this next one comes from to us, to us from Brent in uh, Prince Edward Island, and it is uh, titled Study Bus Narrative of First Nations as Simple Hunter-Gatherers, and it's on Huffington Post, which is not exactly my favorite publication, but it's an interesting story nonetheless. And I'm more interested in what, it, what you have to extract from it rather than what it says by having a larger understanding. But let me read part of it to you at first. 
Vancouver. The discover of an ex- discovery of an expansive system of historic clam gardens along the Pacific Northwest Coast is contributing to a growing body of work that's busting long-held beliefs about First Nations as heedless hunter-gatherers. A team of researchers at Simon Fraser University has revealed the First Nations from Alaska to Washington State were marine farmers using sophisticated cultivation techniques to intensify clam production. In an article published recently in the Journal of American Antiquity, lead author Dana L. argued that the findings counter the perception of First Nations living passively as foragers in the wild with untended environments. Quote, once you start calling someone a hunter-gatherer, there's something implied about not really being connected to the land or sea and not needing much from it, end quote, she said. Quote, even if they aren't former formal agricultural plots in the way that Europeans recognized, they were still cultivating the landscape, end, co- end post. Leptovsky, whatever her last name is, I bet she's left. Anyway, uh, said so the pervasive idea that First Nations were hunter-gatherers made it easy for colonists to justify taking over the land because the resource management differed from traditional European methods. Boy, that I'll agree with. Uh, it made it easier to justify if they even cared. Researchers have concluded that clam gardens dated back to more than a thousand years, and Leptovsky said she strongly believes some were more than 3,000 years old. She said First Nations applied sophisticated management techniques to mimic ideal clam growing conditions, including uh, using stone terraces and sediments at appropriate elevations in the tidal column. Sustainable practices, such as periodically turning over the soils and harvesting selectively, would have emerged to sustain the enormous populations First Nations believed to have inhabited the coast. She estimated the number to be in the hundreds of thousands. Much of the scientific evidence for such practices confirmed knowledge already contained in First Nations songs and stories, said Kim Reklam Kulitsky of Curriculum First Nation on eastern Vancouver Island. Quote, it's astounding that it's taken a whole team of scientists more than 150 years to figure this out that our people weren't standing there with a frying pan in their hand waiting for a sockeye to jump in it, she said. Boy, I feel like I get a lot of kinship with this woman compared to the first one. <laughs> Besides culturally modified beaches dotting the coastline, Reklam and Klutsky referenced complex estuary root gardens and transplanting, fertilizing, and pruning of berry bushes and other historic examples of resource management used by indigenous peoples in the region. She also noted that colonizing governments concluded First Nations did not need a land base because of their supposed hunter-gatherer status. As for the Clam Gardens, Oregon-based researcher Doug Durer said the First Nations marine practice was either ignored, misinterpreted, or sometimes even systematically excluded, particularly when they were competing land claims in an area. Quote, the clam gardens are now are one of the many examples of traditional land management that slipped through the cracks, Dura said. Still, he warned in using a purely Western perspective to interpret the practice. Quote, even while we're celebrating these technologies as interesting, potent, sophisticated, we still don't want to totally look at them through the Western lens, he said, adding, that's what got us in trouble in the past. You read the rest of this article if you want to. Here's, here's my take on this. Uh, to the scientists that are making this discovery, a giant duh. This is what we in the permaculture movement have been talking about since Bill Mollison and David Holgram created the whole damn thing back in the early 70s. A A horticultural approach to land management and feeding ourselves. 
not a – see, the hunter-gatherer thing – This, this scientist says, well, as soon as you say that, what you're implying is a disconnect to the land. No, actually, what you're implying is a complete connection to the land. This is, how, this is why I have such little respect for modern academia, is they've outsmarted themselves into stupidity, is the way that I, I would put it here. H how in the hell would a hunter-gatherer society disconnect itself from the land when it depends 100% on the land to provide its needs. What we have said is that if you are connected to the land, you own the land, you control the land, you bend it to your will. That's actually not a connection to the land. We're the ones disconnected from the land. When we take and plow 100,000 acres into soybeans and corn, we're totally disconnected from the land. Horticultural societies did... Very sophisticated systems. Highly sophisticated systems. Far more sophisticated than much of what we do today. If you think about these clam gardens, um, they didn't have to do a lot once they were set up, except harvest. That was it. And then nature took over from there. You build these terraces, you set things up at certain depths in the tidal pools, etc. And then maybe there's a fluctuation... Uh, by climate change, which actually existed before we were burning fossil fuels, believe it or not. And then you might have to rebuild some elements of the system to accommodate a rise or fall in sea level. Or you might have to create something that actually creates a rise and fall into the area you want, some sort of system uh, that actually directs, controls water that allows you to let it in or out, like a sluice box type technology. There's a lot of things that you can do. But in the end, clams and mollusks, and I'm sure they were feeding on fish and other things attracted to the structures, they lay eggs, they reproduce, they make more. And these types of systems weren't limited to these marine systems. And this lady's talking about, well, they turn soil. Well, maybe, sort of, kind of, in certain places. Um, it is the case that many of these societies I would still refer to as a hunter-gatherer actually had bases of operations, places that they were they were linked to, territories that they managed. And just because they might move their home the way we might move an RV doesn't mean that they left their nation or they left their territory. Imagine that you had a property, a big property, 10,000 acres. And let's say you built a tiny home or you got yourself an RV. And let's say you brought in 20 or 30 other families to live with you on that compound. And let's say to seasonally manage that property, like there's some highlands in the property and some lowlands in the property. There's some areas that are really wet, some areas that are really dry. There's areas that are really producing significant abundance in the spring and other areas in the summer and other areas in the fall and some with limited abundance in the winter. There are patterns. Again, this is a 10,000-acre property. This is pretty big, okay? There's ranches way bigger than that in Texas, by the way. Um, and there's, there's a certain area that makes sense to set up your camp for hunting in the fall, in the winter. And there's certain things that need to be done in the spring, and it makes sense to move there. So you and this collective community that own this 10,000 acres together, that live in this territory, let's say you don't even own it, you've, you've claimed it, and everybody around you has kind of accepted, okay, these guys take care of this space. We're not going to invade their space. They're not going to invade ours. They've, they've reached an equilibrium of what their piece of land can support. And you moved around that land. What, what modern uh, scientists are finally figuring out after hundreds of years of trying to categorize this is that that doesn't mean you're not connected to the land just because you move around on it. That's, that's what the big discovery. Oh, just because they moved, they would, they, still they were connected. And what they did is they set up these systems and tended them. 
So they would observe, okay, this type of tree produces a nut. This nut is good for eating. Okay. They didn't plant a field of them. They found a natural stand of them. And then they observed when this nut falls and fall and a squirrel buries it, it grows. So if we put it in the ground, it will grow. So we clear an area out. And we start expanding into the openings more and more of these productive trees. We pull back some of the things that compete with them to give them an advantage. When they get up to a certain height, the things that would disadvantage them no longer can compete with them, and we can let that kind of go. Europeans come in and see this wild system, but yet there's abundance everywhere. Systems of abundance that were so heavy that farmers, even into the, the early 1900s, would tow carts into our forests and get a number 10 flat coal shovel and shovel chingapin and chestnut to feed the hogs. Because it was there in such abundance. Oh, it just happened that way. Well, what we're finding more and more is, no, it didn't. No, it didn't just happen that way. These primitive individuals were far more sophisticated than we have become when it came to managing land. And I think that what we need to understand, if we are going to make sustainable, productive systems, is that doesn't mean leaving land alone like wilderness and not touching it, and it doesn't mean plowing it flat and in straight lines. It means understanding what will do well here, and then encouraging that, and then developing sustainable practices for management and harvest. This is a horticultural people. This is what Toby Hemingway has been beating the drum about for years and now is beating two really big drums about it. This horticultural concept. Instead of cultivating the dirt, we cultivate the plants themselves through the dirt, if that makes sense. This is no news to me at all. This isn't surprising to me at all. This this lady that apparently is part of this Native Peoples group that says, duh, I agree with. But I guess it's good that modern academia is finally catching up to basic common sense. That, that might be one way to look at this. Because it starts to beg the question, if this was done by people that didn't have bulldozers and excavators, that didn't have key line plow systems, that didn't have the complex mathematical capabilities that we talked about today that were developed in the Western world, that didn't have the understanding at the level we do of genetics and selective breeding, they just, this one's big, so I'm going to plant it, to actually be sophisticated, what could we, as a society, do today? If we started taking a lot of these underdeveloped pieces of land that are just scrub wilderness, that are they're not even wilderness, like scrub woodlots, because we, we decimated them, And we let them just grow back into pioneering species, and they're just tangles. And instead of saying, oh, we're going to turn that into another subdivision, or we're going to turn it into another farm, with as much land as we have like that in this country, what if we started taking this approach? What if we started creating collective groups of people to manage these? What if that actually became a business model? What if that actually became a societal model? I don't think we're ready yet. But I think that unless we go to the oblivion first... The technology is known, the systems are known, and the land is there. And we can do that. The key is it takes time. I am learning a lot about the concept of rewilding myself on my little three-acre property. Uh, Mike, from the blog from Louisiana, said that the more time he spends working his property, the more he feels like he's becoming a native of his land. That's how I feel. And then I think about things like these clam farms and these estuary farms and things like that 
these farms that don't fit what we would call a farm today, but they were farms. They were food production systems managed by people for the good of the community that were, the people were part of. Okay, that's a farm. How native to not this land, but that land were they? And what I mean by that is we think of, oh, the native people, so they were native to North America before we came here. Yeah, true, but... The, the people that lived in what we call Florida today were native to that region, and the people that were native to uh, Washington and Vancouver uh, were native to that region. A very, very different type of thing. And imagine creating systems like this that become multi-generational. What type of intrinsic knowledge does the fifth, sixth, seventh generation have about where they live? It's pretty amazing. And that's where you see both material capital natural capital being developed at a very high level. You also see cultural capital being developed. But the, the, the thing that's in there that was one of the greatest tragedies of destroying these systems and the people's way of life that built them, experiential capital. That knowledge, that experience. A hundred generations wiped out in two. Because we didn't know what we were looking at. And we can recapture it. Because today we can actually do more, not less. So when people say, can these systems really feed the world? Well, I'm not worried about feeding the world. I'm worried about feeding the people in my backyard first, my region second, the confines of what we call the United States today third, and the world fourth. And if we can feed some of the world. Isn't that what all these systems do? There is no one system that feeds the world. By the way, I recently saw an article saying that 20 to 30% of all food produced in on the planet goes to waste. Not just in America, worldwide. And it's not a food shortage. It's an access shortage that we have right now because we don't understand the intrinsic relationship between human beings and the planet The hunter-gatherers weren't aimless wanderers. They just went wherever the animals were. They were hunter-gatherers who developed systems to make their hunting and their gathering more productive. They were horticulturists. That's what I try to emulate with what I do, and that's what I try to teach here on the Survival Podcast. This next one comes from Larry, and I kind of wish he said what he read, Um, but here's what Larry said. After something I read in a book today, I'm absolutely convinced Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. And you are correct that they are wanting to extend it by investing our investments for us, thereby kicking the can down the road before it falls apart. Now, if you don't think Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, let me first read to you the definition of Ponzi scheme. Now, this is the textbook definition of Ponzi scheme. Let me, let me just read this to you. A Ponzi scheme is a fraudulent investment operation where the operator, an individual or organization, pays returns to its investors from new capital paid to the operators by new investors rather than from profit earned by the operator. In other words, I would say you come to me and I will invest your money. So Tom comes to me and he gives me $100. And I say, what I'm going to do, Tom, is I'm going to either invest your $100 in Jackco, my corporation, or as your manager, I'll buy stocks in productive companies that will create a return of investment back to you as a shareholder in the investment corporation or something similar. And so Tom gives me $100. 
And then Bill comes along, and I make the same offer. He gives me $100. And Fred comes along, and I give him $100. And eventually, Tom comes back to me. And I've been doing this a long time, so I have a bunch of money in the fund. There's money there. I'm also taking money for my own use to do whatever the hell I want to with, including put in, you know, Jack Spirico's Permaculture Utopia and Water Park uh, that I paid for with all of your money. And I've, I've spent more than half of what you've given me. But nobody's going to ask me for their money all at the same time. So then I take your money and I blow it on whatever I want. I don't know, bottles of $1,000 scotch, whatever. And eventually Tom, one of my initial investors, comes and says, I want my $100 back. And I want my return. My piece of paper says you owe me $200. And I go, fine, Tom, here's your $200. And Tom goes, well, by golly, Jack's a good guy. It worked. You know, I don't know how he got this water park and permaculture fantasco or whatever he calls it, but uh, it worked for me. I got my money back. And Tom might even say, you know what? This is this is not a bad investment. Let, let me put my $200 back in. Here's another $200. Right? And, and then it, it goes on, and eventually Tom comes back and goes, like, I'm into you for $400 bucks now. What do I got? And I go, you got $800. Bucks. And Tom says, I want my money. I give him his $800. Bucks. Now, sooner or later, all of these initial investors start wanting to do other things with their money, whether it's for retirement or they just want their money back. So everybody starts asking me for money. As long as I'm bringing enough new blood in to keep pumping more money in the system, and now I've gone from it's going to cost you 100 to 200 to 300 to 400, and I'm using my investors that I've spent their money, by the way, by saying, look, Tom came in early. Tom has $3,000 now on a $100 investment. I've just had to increase the minimum of investment because, you know, this is very popular now and I can only take so many investors, and I keep running that scheme. Eventually, in every instance, this breaks down and the system is revealed for what it is because there's no production. There's no profit. I'm not investing your money in Exxon. Or my company, Jackco, doesn't do anything except spend money on Jack. And eventually the system breaks and everybody gets hurt. And it's most likely the people that will do best, even in the scheme, are the first couple hundred, couple thousand, or, in the case of Social Security, couple million people that enter the system. And then eventually the whole system breaks down. And the only way the Ponzi operator can keep the system running is to do what? Bring in more money. So let's examine how Social Security works. So Social Security takes the money from the people of this country by force. At least a Ponzi scheme, you have to be convinced to put your money into it. But let's be honest, we've been convinced to put our money in Social Security because we've allowed it to happen through the electoral process. So the idea is forced on people, but it was also sold to enough people, uh, initially anyway, to get it into law. So the investor, the American people, were sold on the idea you put a little bit of your money away, you invest it in the government, and the government gives it back to you plus interest in the future, like a bond. Why not? It's safe. The government's safe to invest in. Now, they realize that the money they're taking from you isn't enough money to ever do what they really say they're going to do with it or what they want to do with it. So they say to the employer, you have to match it. So initially, they took like 1%, and your employer had to pay 1%. It was actually less than that, but we'll leave it at that for now. And so 2% of your money went in, but you only saw one. So first of all, they were taking money from you you didn't even know you were giving them. Today's about 7.5%. But it's really 15% of your money because your employer matches. If you work for yourself, you know this. You pay a full 15%, a little bit less than that, but right at 15%. Okay? So they're taking your money into the system. It is supposed to be invested in the government and then paid back with interest. 
But the government doesn't invest in anything. The government doesn't produce anything. All the government does is spend money. That's all the government does. They don't produce anything. A, a, a devil's advocate would say, well, they produce infrastructure and they produce services. So the federal government produces a service in the form of a defense of our country, and they produce infrastructure in the form of things like bridges and roads and schools. And I would be inclined to, they're not very efficient at it, but they do that. And that's part of what's made the Ponzi scheme work this long. You don't think Bernie Madoff didn't invest some of the money in actual real investments, do you? Okay, got it. But the key is, as soon as you have your money taken out of your pocket and it goes into the government, it doesn't get used for production, it gets used for spending. And then it's gone. And it's never, ever, 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 ever infinity ever coming back. The dollars you paid in are gone the year you paid them in. They are not held in a lockbox, okay? They are not held in the form of a bond. They are, they are converted into IOUs left in what, what, what is the decimated Social Security Trust Fund, and the money is spent immediately on any and all operations government wants to spend it on. The only way to get money to pay you back with is for years from now, when you're retired, somebody else to be paying into the system so that their money can be used to pay your debt. Now tell me how that's not a Ponzi scheme. It's actually much worse than a Ponzi scheme because it's a mandatory Ponzi scheme, which is part of how the system's been propped up. So, so what does, what does the listener Larry mean when he says, I'm right, they want to help you invest your money to kick the can? What they want to do now are create various new retirement accounts that are mandatory unless you opt out of them that will soon become mandatory, period, because they'll say that people don't understand how important their future is. And it'll work like an IRA, or it'll work like a 401k, or whatever, and they'll make it where everybody can have it, and it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But what's going to happen is they're going to force your money into government bonds. Now, you'd say, well, that doesn't really prop up the Social Security Trust Fund. You got to get this, okay? You think that the government has a bucket over here that says Social Security, and a bucket here that says Medicaid, and a bucket here that says roads, and a bucket here that says school, and a bucket here that says military. They don't. They don't. They have one bucket. It's tax dollars. Tax dollars. What they have are holes that leave the bucket to fund those. So there's a hole, a great big giant hole, that is military spending. There's a great big giant chasm of a black hole that is Social Security and other entitlements, mandatory spendings, okay? Then there's a hole that's pretty big that says something like Homeland Security, right? All they want is for all the holes to keep random money, all right? And eventually, we might have to plug a hole or reduce a hole, but the big holes are never getting reduced. That's why they're mandatory. So you can't slow down Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and we could, but we won't slow down military, And these are the big, and, and the national debt interest is another hole. And the interest on the national debt is now higher than the budget for the entire United States military 15 years ago. Put that in your bonnet. So the only way to keep all the holes, like all these funnels working, they don't care where the money goes into the bucket, they just need more money into the bucket. So when you, sign up for your government-approved MyRA or whatever else they come up with, and they'll come up with 
tons of variations of this stuff in the future to figure out which one sticks. I'll throw it all the wall. This one's stuck. That'll be Social Security 2.0. They won't call it that. They'll say it's a private investment. See, what some advocates said is we should be able to take some of our Social Security and invest it into a private pension fund overseen by the government and protected by the government. Well, the government never gives you back something. So they'll give you something. Yeah, you have Social Security plus that, plus your private retirement, which they have their eyeballs on as well. And as long as they can force more and more money into the public debt, they can keep filling up the bucket, which is a Ponzi scheme by force. Another way they've done this, and I've talked about this before, but not for a while, so I'll mention here before we close on this one. They've gone in, in their little fascist, neo-fascist networks, with American Express and uh, Chase and all of these companies, Edward Jones, that, that manage private pension funds in the form of 401ks. And they have systematically, while no one paid attention and no one told you but me, eliminated cash option investing in those funds. If you go look at your 401k plan right now and you look at all of the options, about 8 to 9 out of 10 of you will see no cash value fund. There used to be a cash value fund in every retirement account in America. I remember as an employer saying, I want to make sure I have this for my employees and having rep after rep tell me we have to provide that. I always thought that meant it was a law. It wasn't a law. It was a policy of the company itself. All of a sudden, that policy just evaporated into a wind fart, and those cash value funds were removed from your 401k. What do you think it got replaced with? Bond funds, and the most safe conservative bond fund that exists in those accounts now, U.S. government bonds, and a little bit of municipal bonds, which are like your city, your county bonds. That's what those funds are made up of. So, what they did in one fell swoop was take between 10 to 20%, because that's the average amount of safe money people keep in 401ks, 10 to 20%. Some people keep a lot, some keep none, some keep a little. When you average it out, it's about 10 to 20% of all 401k investments are in the most conservative investment within the vehicle that there is. And they moved 10 to 20% of all existing investment, except some of it got grandfathered, but all future investment into private pensions into government debt without actually technically taking money from you. They just took away your option without telling you. And most people never saw it. That's another attempt to keep money going into the bucket to keep it coming out of the holes. It's not that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. It's that all government-backed debt-based systems are Ponzi schemes. Social Security and pension funds are the way you get directly versus indirectly hurt when the Ponzi fails. The entire government is a Ponzi scheme. They produce nothing, they only take and spend, and they always look for a way to take more to pay for the cost of what they spent yesterday. There is no world in which we cannot, we can look at government as it's run in modern day and say it is anything but a Ponzi scheme. Think about that when you defend either side of the dichotomy. Because it's what both of them are doing. And trust me, just like Hogan and the Iron Sheet back in the 80s, they're smoking dope in a Corvette going down the highway after all the fighting's over on the floor, laughing at you because you're paying the bill, and they've set themselves up to be retired and cared for for life.
Let's take another one. Uh, this is an interesting one because it kind of fits right in with the, the whole story that we did about the clam farming in a totally different way from the other John in West Virginia. By the way, John from West Virginia, where the heck are you at, brother? I have not heard you call in for a Friday show since the day before forever. If you do call in, bro, um, email me and let you know you did because I want to make sure I try to get you on a show again in the future if you're still out there. Anyway, other John from West Virginia says, Jack, sometimes we forget the advantages of invasiveness of a certain species. Every spring, I let my initial mowing of my yard go until I have about 12 inches of growth. Then before I mow, I see what the birds have planted for me uh, that is something I want. I have one stand of blackberries that I just built a border around and mulched, and that's been going for three years. I have a stand of black raspberries that was started out as a single plant in part of my yard. Uh, I'm, I'm moved to where I wanted. The spring, I have already found three elderberries that I will let go until fall and then move them to a part of my yard to be an understory plant. I do buy and plant blackberries and raspberries in the yard, but these volunteers gave me a head start. When we plant a food forest, we're letting nature become our partners in guerrilla gardening. My planting of honeyberries, kiwis, and so forth will add the eventual naturalized species diversity in the area. Uh, the other John. I'll tell you what. Um... Absolutely. And this is horticulture. It amazes me when I hear somebody uh, in, a, in a, like a forum ask a question about a plant, and, they, and somebody else goes, oh my God, this plant is horrible. I planted some, and it's showing up everywhere now. I can't get rid of it. I can't kill it. And every time I cut one down, another one grows back. And it's a plant that either fixes nitrogen or provides something edible. I, I don't understand the problem. And usually what the problem is, well, I want something else in that space. And unless what, what's wanted in that space is empty, open grass, it's almost never a problem. It's almost never a problem. Because nature, in the abhorrence of a vacuum, fills space. And that means, let's say I had a plant, like an invasive autumn olive, the evil, evil autumn olive that invades and destroys and kills, Okay. And this autumn olive was growing in a spot. And the problem is I wanted hazelnuts where that autumn olive is. Well, if I plant hazelnuts and I go out there, well, I don't know, twice a year and I cut that autumn olive to the ground and throw all of the pieces of it on the ground as mulch, what's going to happen? That autumn olive will coppice and it'll get bushier and bushier and bushier. It'll keep coming back. It'll get angry. It'll try to survive. And eventually it'll go... Uh, quit! Suck! Stop cutting me! And it'll either give up, or the even if it doesn't, the hazels will become so advantaged over the autumn olive that they'll shade it out, and it'll become all scraggly and skanky, and it just won't grow anymore, and eventually it'll atrophy out and die. So it's now actually assisted the hazelnuts in becoming established where the unknowing eye sees it as invasive. Or it's actually an establishment species designed to make that other species establish itself. The only thing I'm waiting for is for the space to be occupied. As soon as you see life through that lens, all this invasive species nonsense goes out the window, with a few exceptions. I mean, kudzu, if you ain't got goats, I can see where that's a problem. I, I really, really can totally see where that's a problem. Though I still think it can be managed a lot better than a lot of people think. You know all those places where like pine forests have been eaten to the ground by kudzu? 
What if you did nothing for long enough? What do you think is going to happen? I'll leave it to you to figure out. Anyway, um, but yeah, kudzu can be a problem. But most of the stuff we call invasive, number one, isn't invasive. It's native. right? So I, I have seen people calling junipers, what's commonly referred to as mountain cedar, but it's actually juniper, invasive because they're dominating the... the um, the environment known as the sagebrush steppe. Sagebrush steppe ranges from Texas to Montana, different places of this sagebrush steppe ecosystem. And the junipers are destroying the sagebrush steppe. There's too many junipers crowding out the other species. Moron. The juniper is a native species to the sagebrush steppe. What we've done through careless grazing and through other practices and not understanding hydrology and draining what we already thought was a dry land to be totally dry through agricultural practices around it is to disadvantage the other species and then the juniper has an advantage even if itself is weakened. So it becomes the dominant species in an attempt to keep the ground covered long enough to repair the system so that it can success into something else, and our solution is to cut down the juniper tree, which actually could work if we then put something in its place that we restored the habitat for so that it could occupy the space. This is why when we look at like seven-layer design, ground cover, below ground level, rhizome layers, uh, herbaceous layer, shrub layer, subcanopy, canopy, and vine. When we look at that in permaculture, and, and the agriculturalist says it's too complicated, it doesn't work, whatever, and then they're out there fighting weeds all the time, this is why. The seven-layer system isn't something that I teach because I like it. And it's not something you have because you want it. These seven layers are actually just spaces. No matter where you live, if you're on planet Earth, you have an area below your feet, below the ground layer. There's a rhizomial layer down there. If you don't put something down there to do the interactions that, that need to be in that space, nature will send something. Then there's a sprawling ground cover layer, something that covers the earth. If you have bare dirt in nature, something's broken. Or you're in true arid desert. And I mean shifting sands desert for that to be the case. If you're in any sort of temperate, tropical, subtropical, Mediterranean, whatever climate, And you look and see a bare patch of dirt. We call that a disturbance. Something messed it up. And if you leave it alone long enough, unless it's really messed up, it will get covered with something. So if you don't cover it with something, nature will. You will then see herbs coming up and occupying a lower space. You'll see shrubs and woody perennial shrubs and spaces occupying another space. Eventually trees will get up into, into adolescent trees or Trees that are under a canopy and therefore can only grow so much until the canopy opens. That's your subcanopy. And great big giant trees and then vines will climb all over those things. There is nothing you can do to prevent that without constant, continual maintenance that's also damaging the ecosystem you're in. Nothing. Now, we can sustainably do that with things like holistic grazing. We can manage a savanna ecosystem with some pasture and not have a clump jungle, but then we have to do it in a way that allows for enough variance of species to be stable while being low. 
And the animals have to be part of the system to help manage it with us because we can't do it alone. There's no invasive species. There's no weeds. There's simply something occupying a space that we would prefer be occupied by something else. And instead of trying to remove the occupier, we need to create a co-occupancy and advantage the occupier we prefer. That's how simple this stuff is. Now, it's a lot of work, especially in the establishment phase. But the dividends pay for multiple generations. And that's what John's seeing in his backyard because his yard is becoming so fertile. Because John's becoming a native, wild member of his piece of property. Whether it's acres or a half an acre, doesn't matter. He's becoming a native to his block of dirt. And he's coexisting with it and he's encouraging it. Plants that you're buying are showing up and growing on his property. And then he's simply shaping them to his will without directly impinging on nature's will. It's a co-creation of a system. And we're starting to see it here too. We're seeing things pop up all over the place going, I didn't know we had that on our property. Where'd that come from? I don't know. Well, I planted some of that way over there. Now it's here. How'd it get here? I don't know. But I know I'm happy about it. That's what's possible. Let's take another one. Um, here's an interesting question. This comes from Scott. Scott said, regarding A-frame levels, uh, I recently purchased a gauge frame level from your new sponsor, the Permaculture Woodshop. It came quickly and was easy to assemble, and I started using it immediately. I have a question about using one of these types of tools, however. My land is fairly bumpy with clumps of dirt and or grass resulting in random variations of an inch or two all over the place, making overall contour, which is what I assume I should be aiming for. Uh, masking the overall contour, which is what I sh should be aiming for. What techniques or process would help me to measure the overall true contour instead of ending up with a contour line jumping between random small bumps and knobs? My current goal is to mark off 50-foot garden beds, so I thought about tilling them first, roughly level things out, and then running the level over them. What do you think? If this is something we should throw at uh, someone else for the expert council, that would work, whatever you think, Scott. Um, you could kind of level the areas, sort of, so you don't have these holes and rocks and bumps and lumps and things like that. And you could do that, and that may or may not really work well for you in this situation. You're right when you say the overall contour, and, and that is what you should be aiming for. And that might make you a little bit more at peace at some of these imperfections in your land, because son of a gun, land just isn't perfect from from point to point with contour. Um, there's always a way that that happens, but it could be uh, a bend that looks like, a, a, I don't know, the, the radius of a, uh, a pie plate. Um, or it could be a bend that looks like a great big V, almost a point-back thing. And these imperfections exist, and if we're going to actually do design that's reasonable and proactive, we just have to accept some of these variations. So one of the main things we can do, if we're putting in something like a swale, we do the best we can shooting the contour line. And then since we're excavating the material from the swale, we build our basic swale, And then we take that level, we go back through the swale, and we level the bottom. If the bottom's level, pretty much all is well. It will do what it's supposed to do. It might be a little deeper here, a little shallower there. I'm talking inches, not feet. That's one way to do this. Another way is that we take our A-frame level, and usually what happens is you find a, a, two level points from wherever you start. And you flag it, and you flag it. 
Okay. Then the next thing you do is you move the A-frame level forward. And an A-frame level, for those that aren't familiar with it, is just an A-shaped, two pieces of wood, and then there's a, a pendulum that hangs down. And when it's dead center, you're on level. And when it's off, you're off. And the one that, that Scott's using is one made by Permaculture Woodshop, and it actually has percentages, degrees. So if you're, if you're five degrees down slope, it will tell you you're five degrees down slope. This can be used in another way that I'll give you here in just a second to compensate for these little imperfections. All right. But anyway, you go to the next one. And usually you can find one or two, and then you get to a spot where just can't find level. I've gone in a hundred, you know, I've got 180 degrees of circle here, and everything's off by a little bit. Okay. It probably means that the spot that would be level either has a rock or a bump bringing it up or a hole bringing it down. So what you do is back your, your A-frame level up half the distance to the, the last flag. So it's sitting directly between your two flags and find level there. Put in a new flag and then move it forward the full length of the level to compensate. Most of the time, or you bring it back a foot, or you bring it back two feet, you do it wherever you can find a spot that's level and ignore the imperfection. That's one way you can do it. If you were using the gauge frame level, and the best you could do, let's say, is one degree down. The closest you can get to level is your 1% downhill now. Mark it. Move your frame to the next spot. Put the end there. And mark it one degree up. That's why I love the gauge frame level. If it was two down, two up. And yes, the, the center point, right, if you, of your three flags, the one in the middle is downgrade a little bit, but the overall contour is now consistent. You've compensated for it. And it could be any number of degrees you want as long as you come back the same number of degrees in the opposite direction. That is one of the best uses of this tool that I don't think most people think about. Personally, I use an A-frame level when I have nothing else available, or it works really well on fairly significant slope where you can kind of sort of see where the contour line is anyway. Because it's real easy to compensate with these little compensators there. Where the A-frame level kind of meets its match is where the land is 2, 3, 4%. You can't even, like, the places that people say are, are, are flat all the time. Or wonky land. Land that looks like it goes downhill straight ahead of you, but it actually goes downhill to your right and then bends around. And then goes back down grade, like my west pasture. A-frame levels get confusing there. Or if you get to a situation where you're dealing with um, places with a lot of trees. I mean, and obviously if you have enough trees that you can't get the level in there, that's a problem. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an area where it's open tree. might be a nice place to stick in a little food forest or something like that with some existing canopy. And the trees themselves create a mounding effect in the earth and you kind of have to work your way around them. In those instances, you just kind of have to work your way around it. And you try to do exactly what you said. Try to find a main, no, try to find contour. Level points across 50, 100, 200 feet, and your mainframe of your contour is then consistent, and you can do little excavation compensations in between. Now, that's why the superior tool, if you can afford one, is a laser level. If I have a laser level, and I'm 20 feet from my last mark, 
and I just can't find contour. I just move five feet forward or five foot backward to get out of this weird, wonky little area, and I can easily find the mainframe contour. It's a far superior tool, but the Egyptians used A-frame levels to build the pyramids. So it will do everything just as accurate as the A-frame level. It just requires a little more finagling and a little more time. So those are the ways you can do that. Now here's another thing you can do. When you are putting in a series of beds, contour-based garden beds, what you do is you mark your highest contour line. So your, your highest contour line. And then go and equal space the beds, mirroring the top contour line. And as you build the beds, excavate up or down to level out the paths in between the beds. So that way you actually have something that approaches looking like modern agriculture. The beds are four feet apart or six feet apart or eight foot apart. They're not six foot apart here, eight foot apart there, nine foot apart here, eleven feet apart, and two feet apart. Because there's a, a, a variance over that short a distance. So what you can do then is you just take, if you're doing garden beds, you take a tape measure. Doing larger systems, you might use a rope and two people. That's what we just did in Arkansas. I'll get to that in just a second to lay out a key line-based system and do some compensation with your excavation, which is large scale. But with a garden, what we can do is we can take a six-foot, we want them six foot apart, take a six-foot bamboo stake, flag your first line, put your bed in. You want to come six foot off the back of that bed, put that stake on the ground, Put a flag in the ground and mark your next bed or series of beds exactly six feet the whole way. Excavate your bed and then go through with your A-frame level and level your path and even out the bed. Take your six-foot stake, go down to your third level. Just equal distance. It's going to mirror. Unless you have a really, really accentuating landform, it's going to be close and then you just compensate as you go. In Arkansas, to create 80-foot laneways... So that, let's say, a hay, hay, hay machine could come in and make a 35-foot cut, have room to turn around, come back, make another 35-foot cut, the whole inner swell's done. Or you could take a straddle harvester and put it over elderberries or aronias, boom, 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 equal distance. We found the mainframe key line coming off of the primary valley, out to the ridges on two sides. We put in two swales. Those swales are at a 1% downgrade. And then we had people with 80-foot ropes, Mark off the next ones. We had places where there were significant variations. There's a, you're crossing another little valley. Well, we excavate that out. We put in what's called a pocket pond, drive through pond. So that would fill with water. And once it filled, it would continue the swale working normally, heading out to that ridge. And then when the, when the water event stopped and the water infiltrated, that pocket pond will hold water for a while and it'll slowly infiltrate like a big flat wide swale. It becomes amphibian habitat and things like that, but it generally is a wet weather pond only. And we can do other types of drive-throughs when we're coming across a ridge where it goes up a little bit high. So we can take that out to the biggest systems on hundreds of acres or right down to 30, 40-foot garden beds. And that A-frame level is not just to find the contours. It's to find the best contour you can within reason and then compensate as you do your construction. That's another way to use it. And again, the cool thing with the gauge frame level is if I can't get dead level, which is the biggest problem with a string level, I just can't get dead level. Well, with this, I'm 2% down, go to the next spot, 2% up. Now I know that the, the A and C are level. And then all I can do is I can look from, let's say I go A, flag A, flag B, 
flag C is my problem, and D is level. So A, B, and D are level. And C might be a little bit off, kind of wacky, not really the shape I'm looking for. I get back, I stand at A, and I have a partner move flag C to where it lines up and makes a nice, even contour line. And then I just be at peace with that. Nothing will ever be perfect. And if it's going to be perfect, I have to excavate it to perfection after the fact. Most of the time, it will be good enough the way that it is. Let's take another one. Now time for your weekly dose of Supa de Mierda de Toro, also known as bullshit soup out of the media. Everybody's making a big stinking deal out of this one. Uh, everybody thinks this is a, a victory for those of us in the liberty movement that are against government spying. Um, this was sent to me by Joe. Joe gets it, but I'm not going to say what Joe said about it until I read it to see, well, if, if, if you guys get it. Um, of course, what I'm talking about is the NSA collection of phone records is illegal, according to a United States appeals court. Let me read this to you. Washington, a key appellate court ruled Thursday that the National Security Agency broke the law with its sweeping collection of telephone cell data in a groundbreaking decision that repudiates the Obama administration and encourages Congress to weigh in. Think about that line right there. Think about that line right there. Encourages Congress to weigh in. The unanimous decision by a three-judge panel of the New York-based Second U.S. Court of Appeals is the first to conclude that Section 215 of the United States Patriot Act does not authorize the NSA's bulk collection of so-called metadata. It comes just as sharply as divided lawmakers try again to rewrite the law. Quote, This case serves as an example of an increasing complexity of balancing the paramount interest in protecting the security of our nation with the privacy interests of its citizens in a world where surveillance capabilities are vast and where it is difficult, if not impossible, to avoid exposing a wealth of information about oneself to those surveillance. Judge Gerald E. Lynch wrote, The open-ended reach of the NSA's telephone collection effort exceeds the current law, which limits the collection of information to what's relevant to authorized investigation, according to the court. Quote, Section 215's language list contemplates the specifically of a particular investigation, not the general counterterrorism intelligence efforts of the United States government, Lynch wrote in a 97-page decision. The Deputy White House Secretary Eric Schultz told reporters aboard Air Force One on Thursday that the White House was still reviewing the decision. What? What? Do you get the review? I just want a side note here. When a, when a court says you're doing something illegal, do you get time to review the decision? Just saying. But he said President Barack Obama, quote, has been clear that he believes we should end 215-bolt California metadata program as it currently exists by creating an alternative mechanism to preserve the program's essential capabilities without the government holding its bulk data. See, Obama's always been opposed to this. Well, wait a minute. Well, wait. Don't you remember when he came out and said, nothing to worry about, they're, they're monitoring my phone too, it's okay? Right? You remember that? Anyway... Schultz said the White House was working with Congress and is encouraged by what he said was a bipartisan progress on the USA Freedom Act, an updated version of the Patriot Act, which ends the bulk collection of data. Appealing on Capitol Hill, Attorney General Loretta Lynch called Section 215 a vital tool 
in our national security arsenal. But she said the Justice Department is still reviewing the court's decision. So the President and the Justice Department are in violation of the Constitution and their own laws, but they're taking time to review the decision to see what to do about it. Other appeals courts are control, confronting similar challenges, on the issue, but, and the issue appears bound for the Supreme Court unless circumstances change. More immediately, the ruling could spur Congress. Lawmakers are currently trying to rewrite the Patriot Act before several provisions of the law, including Section 215, expire on June 1. Next week, the House of Representatives is scheduled to try and approve the U.S. Freedom Act, underscoring the political divisions. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, has countered with a proposal to simply extend the existing Section 215. It is Congress's prerogative, not ours, to resolve the conflict underlying these issues, noted Judge Robert D. Sack in a concurring opinion. I'm going to stop. You should have it figured out by now. United States Second Court of Appeals has ruled that the National Security Agency, President of the United States, and the United States Justice Department are currently in active violation of their own laws and are engaged in unconstitutional behavior under those laws and are actively breaking the law. Those three entities are now considering that decision and figuring out what to do about it. Additionally, the United States Congress is culpable because they wrote the law, and therefore, since there are a whole bunch of lawyers making money off of the corporatocracy, they damn well knew what their provision meant, and they knew that those three entities of our government were in violation of it the whole time. They didn't do shit about it either, and they're also reviewing the decision. If you want to see two classes of citizenry, it's not black and white, rich and poor. The true us and them is the people that run the system and all of us that live within it. They're operating on a completely different set of rules. There is no place where you would be fined an active violation of the law and allowed to continue unabated with that violation of the law, not stopped by the court system, simply told, hey, you're not supposed to be doing this, and then given time to consider it. And then being told, we want you to fix the problem. See, this is the big thing. The court said Congress should fix this. Congress should fix this. The problem isn't to the court that they're collecting all this data. It's that the law they're collecting it under doesn't say that they can. So all your Congress is going to do with the Freedom Act is pass a new law that says it's okay. And then it'll be okay. So the courts just basically help them. Things about to expire, it's up for renewal. If they pass a new law, even if it's almost exactly like the old one, It has to go all the way back to the beginning of a court challenge. You talk about a rigged game, folks. This is a rigged game. This big, triumphant, horn-blowing festival of people talking about how, look, they were violating the law. This is a win for privacy advocates. This is no win at all. We got absolutely the square root of F.A. out of it. Unfortunately, this isn't one you can apply the spherical compensation factor in of multiplying by negative 40 gaff, because this one does affect you. This affects everything you do in your life. This is your government building collective intelligence on you and every other citizen of this country using a phone in it. That's what this is. And the government was just ruled conducting illegal activity, and nothing has been done or ever will be done about it. 
These are the people that you're voting for. Whether you're voting for Democrats or Republicans, these are the people that you're voting for. Ask me again why I refuse to participate in that charade and lend my endorsement to any of these criminals. I mean, in essence, in essence, the Justice Department and the NSA and the President of the United States and his office and his cabinet, I know the President himself has executive immunity, but not all the people advising him do, have just been found guilty of what would be called a federal felony if any of us did it. And in some ways, you might actually say the act was itself a form of treason. The court says so. It says all they have to do is change what the piece of paper says, and it won't be anymore. And it'll be okay. And no one is going to be charged or punished for doing this. It's all okay. Let me ask you just another way of putting this in perspective. Let's say that the state that you resided in today decided that marijuana was to become completely legal and passed a law saying that marijuana was legal. Do you think they would let go and expunge the records of everybody that had been convicted before that date on a marijuana crime? Do you think they'd let everybody go? Do you think they'd forgive the fines? Do you think they would expunge the records and say, since it's not a crime anymore, we're just not going to hold it against anybody? Or do you think everybody already caught in the system would be like a fish still stuck in the net? Us and them, guys. That's the real us and them right there. Plain as day. I'm going to finish with an investing question, and I'm going to tell you that a lot of you aren't going to like the answer, but it's the same one John Pugliano from the expert council that knows something about investing would probably give you. Hey, Jack, what are some good, safe investments for a young couple starting out? I'm marrying my fiancé next summer. I want to have a good idea of how to invest. Neither of us have great jobs yet, though I do pay into my 401k. She's going to be a teacher and may or may not get the chance for a retirement plan, depending on whether she teaches at a public school or a private school. The other hang-up is her family was on food stamps for a few months, and the government overpaid them, and they want their money back. Since she was 18 at the time, they can theoretically take her money, too. Is there any workaround, just like investing in my name, like just investing in my name? Any advice would be great. Love the show. Russ. Um... Whatever the government wants back, they're going to get back. And honestly, even though it's re-theft of theft in the first place, you're probably better off getting them the money back. It's probably not that much. Um, in theory, not only can the government come after her for a portion of the money, they can come after her for all of the money, especially after her parents die. And this could come back and haunt you 50 years from now. So... Yes, the government is sleazy, and yes, the government is scummy, and yes, it's the government's fault that they overpaid food stamp benefits, but pay the debt off and get rid of it. Because what's yours is hers, and hers is yours after you get married, and sooner or later they'll get through your marital veil, if you want to call it that, and get their money. They will get their money, they will get their money, They will get their money. I've even heard of this happening where children have inherited the debts of the parent when the child was not 18 at the time that benefits were overpaid. So get this taken care of and get a letter saying it is resolved before you make the final payment. That's a totally different thing. Okay, here's what you've just told me, though, with your question. I get this question all the time, and it's why I decided to end with it today. We, 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 we make almost no money. We have almost no money. We're just beginning to scrape together $2 and turn them into $5. What do we invest in? Nothing. You invest in absolutely nothing with your money. 
You put your, what is a good, safe investment for a young couple that has almost no money and is carrying existing debt load and is just trying to start investing? Cash. Cash. Not silver, not gold, not 401k plans, nothing. Now, if you want to invest in your 401k, I'm okay with that. That's a totally separate bucket. And then you have to, you, you have it really easy there. You have five, ten funds in there to pick from. And you have to look through them and make a decision based on what they are and what they do. But even in there, how about cash? Or how about the government bond fund that they've created to suck your money into the eternal vortex of the government Ponzi scheme known as government and taxation? Safe. Here's the thing. You're not going to make any money on investments when you have $10,000, $20,000 in money. If you have $10,000 in money and you make a 10% return, you've made $1,000. That's a good return. 10% is a good return. Well, that's $1,000 I wouldn't have had, Jack. You know what? In the time that you're going to dick around putting your money at risk, where you could lose 1000 or two, you could have just put the $10,000 into cash, and you could have gone out and earned $1,000 relatively easily, delivering pizzas for two weeks or three, and put that money away and quit your job. And say, there's my return on, there's my, there's my 10% now and all my money's safe. Because when you're young and in this position, what you have that is your most valuable commodity is energy. Your income. You have the ability and the flexibility at this station in your life to earn extra money here and extra money there and extra money here and just keep putting it away. My belief is until you have some basic preparedness in your home, You can eat for 30 days, you have water, a little bit of backup power type stuff going on, you have a couple thousand dollars in a true emergency fund, and you've saved up enough money that you can pay your bills for 90 days, your 90-day emergency fund. Until all that's done, all of this investing talk is irrelevant. Investing is about taking your wealth and leveraging it to produce a return on your money while mitigating your risk Because you've acquired enough wealth to qualify to do that. You have not. And most people that say, what should I be investing in, have not. And that is why they're asking the question. About the only exception to the rule is somebody gets a big life insurance payment or a big inheritance, and now they're looking at $500,000 going, holy crap, what do I do with this? And, and they're, they're thinking, I need to invest it so that it gets out of my face so I'm not tempted to waste it. And there's some, there's some wisdom there. But they can make dumb decisions too. I know someone who got a big chunk of change and said, I got to put this in investments. Uh, the year was 1999. Uh, they called up a financial advisor, selected him, went into all these funds that had these great returns the year before, and you know what happened next. Probably would have been better off spending the 25-30% of that money that they lost to pay off debt or build a house or whatever and put the rest in cash. They would have come out ahead by not investing because they weren't ready for investing yet. So investing is leveraging wealth. Therefore, you have to acquire wealth to leverage it. And when you have insignificant amounts of money, and I know $10,000 does not seem like an insignificant amount of money. It isn't. $10,000, to be blunt, is a shitload of money from an earnings and spending standpoint. For it is a shitload of money is a cost. 
For an investment basis, it is a very small amount of money. It is one security within a portfolio, and it's probably not even quite that. I would say you get your 90-day emergency fund, and I don't two is one and one is none, so my $1,000 emergency fund plan, $2,000 emergency fund. You get 30 days worth of food. You have your trickle going to your 401k, that's fine. That's fine because money you don't really think about. But think about it once in a while. And you save up enough money in that 90-day true long-term emergency fund. And then start putting money in cash somewhere else, in another cash account. When that number hits $30,000, you'll be a lot more mature financially. You'll be a lot more disciplined financially. You'll place a lot more value on your total wealth. You'll be a better steward of it. And you won't invest it in an investment unless you understand it. And at that point, you could find a good investment advisor. You'll probably have to talk to about 50 that will help you build your wealth going forward. Until that point, you're risking more than you'll ever gain. And most financial advisors tell you the same story and then set you up to start automatic investing the very next day when you have no emergency fund, you have no 90-day fund, you have no reserves. But, hey, just invest, just save 10% of your money. Totally cool with you saving 10, 15, 20% of your money. Just put it in cash until there's enough of it to where it can be leveraged conservatively and still pay a return that's worth the investment. If you have enough capital, it's much easier to invest in ways where you can think first, how do I not lose? Or how do I mitigate my losses? Or how do I have a stop point on my losses? And then find the potential gains that go with those. That's solid conservative investing. And most of you guys that are 22, 23, 24 years old, 25 years old, that have managed to save up 500 bucks and want to know what kind of silver to buy, shouldn't be buying any of that shit. You should be opening a bank account that's just savings, that's not attached to the primary payment bank account you use every day, so it's not easy to just transfer the money. You should stick the money in there, and you should start piling money in there. Just pile it in there. Pile it in there. Pile it in there. And pile it in there. When it gets up to 90 days worth of your expenses, your base expenses, open another account and start doing it again. But I'll lose. You won't lose. You'll gain so much. And I bet you if Mr. Pugliano listens to today's show, he'll back up every word I just gave you. It might be counter to what Susie Orman and all of the idiots on Financial Talk TV and stuff tell you. But they're the ones that told you back in 2008, just sit tight. Everything's on sale. It's going to be okay. And then came back and said, well, now you're going to be working until you're 70, just a year and a half later. And never apologize for screwing the people over that listen to them, not even one time. Of course it's counter to what everybody else tells you. That's why it works. That's why you can trust it. Because it puts you in control of your wealth. And it gives you enough time to, to develop enough wealth to develop the financial uh, intelligence required to be a good steward of your own money. That's my advice. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. With that, it's been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I
Nobody up there cares. 